All right, Cedar Lake, hope you guys are ready to go. I need to let you guys know that uh, I've been studying this passage all week, right, and writing this message, and I just got out of a two-day intro to systematic theology class that was 12 hours over two days, so I have no idea how long I'm going to go this morning. If I start saying really big words, someone come up here and yank me off the stage because it's not going to be helpful to, uh, to anybody, but uh, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get out of here on time. <clears throat> That's my aim, anyways. First John 2, 7 to 11. I'm going to read the passage, and then uh, we're going to get into it. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's been said already a few times in this series as we've given context to why John's writing and who John is writing to, but uh, I thought I'd be able to say it again is that uh, at the time that the Apostle John pens uh, this letter to the church that he pastored, he's, he's old in age. He's a seasoned pastor, a veteran pastor. He's been around the block. And not only that, but he walked and talked with Jesus. And these people that he's writing to, this old seasoned veteran pastor, these people, these dear people he loves, so much so that he calls them my little children in 2-1. He loved them so much. These These folks that he loves and he's pastoring have just gone through one of the most painful spiritual experiences anyone can go through, and that's a church split. Now, some of us have never been through or gone through a church split, but I'm confident and I know that as we sit here this morning, many of us in this room are very, very familiar with the relational complication and the pain that results from a church split. And even as I say those words, It's very real, very fresh, and maybe even some emotions are rising to the surface. And as you you hear about this church that John pastors, you're, you're resonating with this. The folks that would have read this letter initially, as John writes, and who knows, maybe it was read out loud in one of their gatherings for the very first time. Maybe John, uh, maybe John read it. Maybe somebody else in the church read it. But as, as they read and as they interact with this letter for the first time, they're right in the thick of this. They're right in the midst of this church split, this relational complication, some of this devastation. And as John writes, these folks, they they read about certain doctrines and certain practices that ought to be true in the lives of authentic Christ followers. For them, faces and names and families and relationships would have been coming to mind. John's not speaking in theory when he writes 1 John. He's not speaking in theory. He's speaking into the current circumstance, the current situation, the current pain and struggle of this church. And he's trying to shepherd this church and help them to make sense of their present reality. Because if you've ever been through a church split or or some of that relational complication, you know, sometimes it's hard to make sense of it. It's hard to make sense of it all. As you see people come and go and you get into discussions and arguments and there's disagreements, sometimes it's hard to compute and make sense of everything. So John's trying to to shepherd them in this. 
And we know that for John's church, there arose factions and divisions that centered most, mostly on doctrinal issues concerning Christ. And some very serious errors and um, some practical and moral implications because of those false teachings. False teachers and teachings arose that spawned disagreements. And in the process of dialoguing and debating as the church was going back and forth, and eventually these disagreements and these debates led to people leaving, there were attitudes and there were actions toward John, the pastor, and also toward others in the church that were anything but loving. There was a lot of unlove going on. There was a lot of hate going on. And there was a lot of relational devastation and the irony in all this is that this split this division happened under the ministry of the apostle known as the apostle of love i don't know if you guys knew that but john's known as the apostle of love and yet he's the only one that i i know of that wrote a letter in the new testament specifically to a church torn in two split love was john's sweet spot john's known for teaching modeling promoting healthy horizontal relationships in the church and this here in 2 7 to 11 is the first time we're going to interact with love we'll see as the letter goes on john's going to have huge sections on love this is not the last time we're going to deal with with this issue it was a sweet spot and now we know why now we know why john wrote a ton about love because he pastored in a lot of circumstances and situations where there wasn't love God had ordained a pastoral path for John that included some intense shepherding and some hostile and complex seasons of his church. And it's during those seasons that God helped John to work through what it means to love, what it means to love one another, and what it means for God to love us. And it's because of these difficult seasons that we have some of the richest teaching in the scriptures that we know of about love. The road to that was painful and hard for John. And just a bit of encouragement, if you've been trying to make sense of maybe some recent division or some things going on in your life, and you're wondering why, I can even imagine John like sitting in his office, if they even had offices back then, just pleading and, and crying out to God, God, why? Why is this happening? Why is this division going on in my church? Why are these guys saying these things? Why are these innocent people following these false teachers? Why is all this strife and all this bitterness and all this anger and all this disagreement? Why? And we see the good. We see the fruit. And we see the sovereignty of God to even take some of the most difficult scenarios and the most difficult situations and use it for our good and for his glory. For out of this complication, for out of the split came rich truths about the love of God and rich truths for us to wrap our hearts and minds around what it means to love each other. And so it's in this context of pastoral difficulty that John writes. Now let's get to some immediate context here in 2, 7 to 11. We remember that John's answering this question. How can I know that I'm a Christian? Or how can I know that someone else is a Christian? We've already seen it's not because they say they are. It's not because of the words that they say. We're going to see that again today. Talk is cheap to John. John can care less what comes out of your mouth. He's more interested in what our lives say. He's more interested in what the direction and the trajectory of our lives say. And so last week we saw John introduce this obedience test in chapter 2, verse 4. And he said this, whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I, I have fellowship with God, I know God, I'm saved, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John speaks harshly. 
And John speaks in black and white. And he does so for our good. He does so because he doesn't want anybody to interact with his letter. He doesn't want anybody in his church to walk out the doors on a gathering with a false assumption that they're in Christ and the reality is that they're not. And so John speaks bluntly and sometimes harshly, but it's for our good. And hopefully we'll see the grace in this and some of these, some of these to-the-point words. And so he asks, do you obey? Is there evidence of obedience to God's word, which is his will? And we looked at last week that obedience to God's will and obedience to God's word is evidence of genuine salvation and authentic fellowship with God. And Steve used that wonderful illustration for us in saying that we're heading east, but our lives are really heading west. And if repentance of sin and a longing to worship God and love God and obey him is east, what do we say of the person who's clearly heading west? Regardless of what comes out of their mouth, what is that directionally what does that say we looked at we asked that asked that question what is the overall trajectory of your life and if you're in christ it'll be one toward knowing worshiping loving and obeying him and so we said you know the further and longer someone goes down a path of repentance and obedience and a longing to love and worship god the more confident they can be the more confident they can be that they're in Christ, that God's done a good work in their life and continues to sustain that work. But the further along my life goes in a different direction, one of sin and one of darkness and one of unrepentance and one of not wanting to worship God but live for self, the more that person can be assured that they're not alive, that there's a deadness and a darkness deep down in the heart. So John's going to do more of the same here in 7 to 11. He's going to check our pulse. He's going to put his two fingers on, on our hand like this. He's looking for a pulse. He's going to put his ear to our chest. He's going to look for a heartbeat. Is there life? He's going to listen for breath. Is there life here? Are you alive? That's the question that John's asking. And to do that here in 7-11, 7-2-11, he switches from the use of commands in a very general way in 3-6 to to talk about a very specific command in verses 7 to 11, and that's the command to love. And John now, for the very first time in this letter, gives us the social test or the love test. So now on to our passage and this very seemingly confusing language about old and new commands. In this language where he starts talking about old and new commands, in this we see the oldness and the newness of love. And I don't think oldness is even a word, but it's there. The oldness and newness of love in verses 7 to 8. The commandment that he is talking about here is the commandment to love. Now, love is only mentioned one time in these five verses, but if we take the, the context as a whole, it's very clear that John's talking about when he says commandment, it's a commandment to love. And John says that this love commandment, it's not new. This love commandment is old. The commandment is old and that the commandment to love existed before the coming of Christ. This commandment to love certainly existed before the time John writes this letter. And so John says here that this is a commandment that you have heard from the beginning. And it is the word that you heard. So what does John mean when he said that this commandment existed from the beginning? The beginning of what? Well, I think it's very safe to say that we could say the the very beginning. The beginning of this redemptive story. The beginning of God's interaction with his creation. And we see the commands 
to love God and love neighbor existed as early as the third and fifth books of the Bible, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Very early on, God introduces this command and this idea of love. Look at Deuteronomy 6 with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Israel, God's people, love the, love the Lord your God with every fabric of your being. Heart, soul, strength, might, mind, everything. Love him with everything that you are. I love the emphasis on heart. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Keep that in mind because that's going to be a theme as we move forward. So we see that, love God. And we also see love neighbor, Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. See the emphasis there on heart? But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So very early on, love God, love neighbor. This would have been part of the fabric. This would have been part of the thinking of God's people from the beginning. Now it was Jesus who famously linked both of these two verses together when a slick young ruler came up to him to ask him a question. And really, this guy's trying to trip Jesus up when he asks the question, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? He's trying to get Jesus to pick one over the other. They're trying to find one little bit to nail him on, right, to discredit him and his teaching. And so this slick young guy comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. The emphasis and the direction of the law and the prophets and everything that God has called us to do can be summed up in these two commandments. Love God, love neighbor. Because when we love God and we love neighbor, we won't find ourselves breaking commandments. When God says, have no other gods before me, when we love God first, we won't have other gods before him. Or even when the commandments come very specifically to not covet or want your neighbor's things or not murder. When we love neighbor, we won't murder. And so this is why Jesus says the essence of all the commands, the essence of all that I've called you to do is love. Love for me, love for neighbor. And so we see that this commandment's old. This has gone back from the beginning. And even, beyond, even before Leviticus and Deuteronomy, even beyond these famous two commandments, God's love has been seen from the beginning. Even back from Genesis. As God loved his creation to make a place suitable for us to be fruitful and multiply. God fashioned this world in such a way that we could subdue it and bear fruit, live and play and work in it. He made it for us. God loved Adam and Eve in their sin, even after they fell, to clothe them and promise a redeemer instead of judge them. God loved Abraham to make a covenant with him, to be a father of a great nation that would eventually bless all other nations. God loved his own people to bring them out of Egypt in the Exodus. So in one sense, this love is not new. They know this love. They've heard of this love. It's been around from the beginning. But in another sense, the commandment is new. How? Why? In what sense is the commandment new? It's new because Christ makes it new. It's new because of Christ. And here we see the newness of love. Now John here is going to borrow this new commandment language from Jesus in his own gospel. Look at what Jesus said in John's gospel, John 13. A new commandment. Okay, you see that? A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
So the newness comes in with the example of Christ. Love one another. Old. Get that. Here's the newness. Just as I have loved you. The oldness, love one another. The newness, love each other as I have loved you. The newness comes in with the example of Christ. Just as I have loved you. Now notice how John puts it here in 1 John 2.8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. This newness, this newness of love is true in Christ. The newness of this commandment to love is new in that Jesus comes and he totally redefines what it means to love. Jesus is always doing this. He's always coming and turning things up over on its head and totally just ruining everybody's theology and messing with people. He loved doing this kind of stuff, okay? He goes, oh, you heard that commandment? Well, let me take it a little bit deeper. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about not murder, but hating your brother in the heart. What? Right? He's always doing this. He's always turning things on its head. He's always showing a deeper and more profound way. He's always going to the heart. And so the newness of this commandment comes in and that Jesus comes and totally redefines what it means to love by his life and his words. Christ comes and brings new shape and new definition to love. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a lot of counterfeit love in our world today. Have you noticed this? We got Notre Dame linebackers with fake girlfriends. We got TV shows that are totally devoted to face, fake, false, misleading relationships on the internet, on MTV. This world of ours is filled with counterfeit love. There's a lot in our world that's claiming to be love. And so how do I know what real love is in a world of fake? John says later in his uh, letter here in 316, he says, by this we know love. This is love. By this we know love. Here's, here's what love looks like. That he laid down his life for us. That he laid down his life for us. Sanity. Clarity. Truth. There's a bunch of junk going on in this world. And there's a bunch of lies going on in this world. And there's a lot of things that are presenting themselves as true love, as true relationship, as true Whatever. And it's hard to weed through it. But then we come to Christ. And John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And there's a moment of sanity. There's a moment of clarity. Love is defined by Christ. Shape, true love, comes from Christ. He redefines love at the cross. He sets new parameters for love. In him we see the new width, the new length, the new height, and the new depth of love. We see the authenticity and genuineness of this love. Jesus was God's love incarnate. God came down to be with us. And his love was shown not in a word or a doctrine or a teaching or a system, but in a face, in a person who showed us his love, who went to the cross in our place for our sins. And it was only Jesus who perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Only Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. This commandment is new, friends, because Christ shows us the new and true expression of this old commandment in the gospel when he bore the penalty for our sins in his body on the tree. Now, to give further uh, definition and shape to what, the, what, what it means that this is new, William Barclay gives three ways that Jesus made this commandment new. The first one is this. It's new in the extent to which it reached. And here we see how far-reaching Christ's love is. Jesus came and loved everybody. And offered this salvation to anyone who would believe. 
Jew, Gentile, man, woman, child, rich, poor, socially elite, socially marginalized, sinners, self-righteous, every tongue, tribe, nation, to the ends of the earth, as far as the curse is found. Jesus offers this love. His love even came to a 20-year-old red-headed region rat in 2000. And if God's love can come to me, that love's far-reaching because I'm nobody. I'm nobody. Who am I? Who am I? 2000, some kid, Northwest Indiana, God loved me and saved me. That's a far-reaching love. That is a far-reaching love. This love is new in the lengths to which it would go. Have you guys ever heard the song by the Proclaimers called I'm Gonna Be? Um, when I read the chorus, you guys will, will know what it is. The chorus reads like this. But I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more, just to be the man who walked 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. Now, besides these dudes having some really sweet glasses, um, these guys are making a, a great point in this song. And the point that this guy's trying to make is he's trying to show how much he loves this girl by saying how far he's willing to walk just to fall down at her door. These 1,000 miles he mentions here are an expression to the degree to which he loves her. Friends, God left heaven to come here and was obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. And Christ's love came to us at the uttermost and he sacrificed everything. From the right hand of the Father to Calvary. This love is far-reaching and it was immense in the lengths to which it went to save us. The length of this love, it's unimaginable. It's unfathomable. Barclay also says this last thing. He says that this commandment is new in the degree to which it's realized. Now, this is going to be the basis for the argument of love as an evidence for salvation for John. Look at what John says in verse 8. He says that this new kind of love is true in Christ, but then he says it's also true in you. You see that in verse 8? This is true, this new commandment is true in Christ and in you, and in you. And at this point, we're like, okay, great. We're talking about this massive love of Christ. We're like, man, who compares to this? We see it in Christ. And then John says, that love that's in Christ is true in you as well. The same life and love that Jesus fulfilled and displayed, John says, will also be true in us who believe. Jesus had this kind of love, and John is saying that all who are saved, all who truly know him, all who are truly in the light, have it too. And this leads us to the nuts and bolts of why love is a test for genuine salvation. So let's look to the love test. Let's take the love test together, shall we? Now remember, John is not interested in what you say. He's not. He can care less. He can care less the words that come out of your mouth. Look at verses 9 and 10, especially the beginning of verse 9. Whoever says, whoever says, whoever flaps their gums and says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. I love John's frankness. I love it. Love it. Black and white, no wiggle room. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I can care less what you say. You say you're in the light, but you hate your brother. You're still in the darkness. So John wants to see this new Christ-defined love in us. He's got his magnifying glass out. And if he were to give you the love test, he would examine you, examine your life, examine your relationships, examine all your interactions to try to find this love. This is what he wants to see. 
because he says it's true in Christ and it's true in us. Now, listen to the parallels between Jesus' words and John's words here in uh, 1 John 2. John 13 again. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Now, Jesus is saying that the world, the world, they're not my disciples. They'll know that you're my disciples by looking in on your life. And when they see love, they'll know that you're my disciples. Interesting that Jesus would say the same. Love is the defining mark for a disciple. But Jesus' emphasis is on the world. And he's saying, they'll know that you're my disciples if they see this love. It's interesting because what John's point is saying is that disciples will know that they're disciples by their love for one another. So Jesus' emphasis is on the world looking in on us, looking to see this love. The world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And John is saying the disciples can know that they are disciples by their love for one another. Now, how is this true? How is this true and why is this the case? How is this true that this love is true in him and also in us? Well, notice what John says here. He says, whosoever loves his brother abides in the light. Whosoever loves his brother abides in the light. Here's how John doesn't say this. Whosoever loves his brother will abide in the light. Or when you get around to loving your brother, then you will abide in the light. No, no, no. Look at his words again. Abiding in the light precedes us loving anybody. Abiding in the light, us interacting with the light, us being in that light, that precedes us loving a single thing. It precedes. The light shining precedes us shining any kind of light of this love. Time spent with, interacting with the light of God's love precedes us displaying a shred of this kind of love. What John is saying here, in other words, is before you can ever love anyone in this way, you yourself need to be loved in this new way. Before you can love anyone in this new way, you yourself have to be loved in this new way. So here's how this is true. Here's the breakdown. Follow me. For the Christian, okay? For the Christian, entrance into this salvation, entrance into this, I say I'm in the light, entrance into this fellowship entailed us being lavishly loved by God in our sin and rebellion. If you say you're a Christian, if you say you're in the light, if you say you have fellowship with God, you're confessing to have been come, come face to face with the lavish love of God in the face of your sin. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I've come to know, I've come to experience, I've come to see this lavish love of God come to the life of this sinner and he's loved me in my sin and died for me in my place. You're claiming to have experienced that, to know that. The whole experience of us becoming Christians includes us being awakened to, marveling at, and embracing the love of God toward us in Christ. We come face to face with this jaw-dropping reality that God loves us. And to show us that he loves us, he crushed his son in our place. God reveals this love to us. He opens our eyes to see this love, and we embrace it by faith. That's salvation. That's salvation. Now, after that, if you're a Christian, and if you're this person who says they're abiding in the light, that's ongoing, that's relationship, salvation for sure, and entrance into it. But two, we, we, we continue to do this for the Christian. We continue to have fellowship with God. We continue to abide in the light. 
And so the whole experience of us becoming Christians involves us interacting with the light and love of God. And the whole experience of us growing as Christians is the same. The whole experience of us growing as Christians includes daily run-ins and encounters with God's covenant-keeping, steadfast, relentless love and grace. Where daily we are reminded that yet again, yet again, God is committed to loving us even in spite of our rebellious tendencies. Remember we sang, Come Thou Fount, a little bit ago. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is us. That is us. We are prone to wander. We are prone to rebellion. We are prone to running away. And every day we sin. And for the Christian, for the person who claims to have fellowship with God, who claims to be in the light, in in the face of your daily rebellion, daily the newness and freshness and the love of God to continually forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness is realized. That's what it means to have fellowship with God. It means to daily come in contact with God's love, grace, and forgiveness. He loves us still. Notice this word that John uses here, abide. It has this idea of dwelling in a place with no intention of moving on. Dwelling in a place with no intention of moving on. If you say you know God, if you say you have fellowship with God, you say you're abiding in the light, you're admitting to being ferociously loved and pursued by a God who is constantly and incessantly at work in your life. I was reading the Psalms a little while ago, and I came across this one phrase. It says that he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. All of God's effort, all of God's words, all of God's, all of God's communication to us in Christ is I love you. I love you, and I'm here. I'm never leaving you. I'm never forsaking you. I'm here. I'm sovereign. This is for a reason. I love you. I forgive you. Christ, Christ, Christ. That's what God communicates to us. He communicates the love that he has for us in Christ. In Christ, God's wrath, we learned in this word propitiation, is turned. God's wrath is turned in the favor, and now all of God's energy and effort towards you is love is love. So here's the kicker. Here's why claiming to have fellowship with God is absolutely impossible. Experiencing this love at this level, experiencing this kind of lavish love can't help but spill over toward others. It can't. It can't. Experiencing this kind of love in salvation and daily as we walk and daily as we sin And daily as God loves us, that love can't help but spill out over into others. It can't. It's impossible. It's impossible to say that you know the love of God and that not affect you somehow. And that not swell your heart up with gratitude, with love, with forgiveness, with humility. It's impossible. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. This is how it works. Christians are always in the light. They have been enlightened And they have come to see certain things. Christians have come to see the nature of sin. And with the Apostle Paul, they have come to see that they were hateful. And that they were dwelling in the darkness. They have come to see that the devil had introduced principles into their lives, which made them hateful. They were alienated from God. But they realized their danger. And they heard the gospel that offered forgiveness because of the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they saw themselves as hell-deserving sinners who are only saved because of the love of God. And they realize now that this must govern their attitude towards the whole of life. For the Christian, the love of God is the lens. It's the lens through which we view all of life. Because daily we're interacting with God on this love. Daily we're interacting. So this is exactly why hating your brother is equated with blindness and darkness. You can't say that you have a relationship with God, the God who's in the light, and constantly and consistently forgives you, and experiencing that forgiveness, and experiencing that care, and then not turn around and extend that to the person next to you. Loving others is the byproduct. Loving others is the byproduct of realizing and experiencing God's loving salvation in our lives. And when I became a Christian, I was 20 years old, and I started to experience something very, very strange. I started to care about other people in my life. I started to actually care about someone other than myself. Because my life, up until that point, was about me. That's it. I did things, and I, ca- I could care less how it affected other people around me. I cared less about the other people in my life. And the people in the church I thought were lame. I thought, they, I, thought they, I thought I was way too cool for school. I thought I was way too cool for them. I didn't want anything to do with the people in the church. You know what happened? God saved me. And this bizarre thing started to happen. I started to want to know and be known by people in the church. I started to want to belong to the people of the church. I actually started to care about what was going on in other people's lives. I wanted to pray for other people. I came in contact with other people that didn't know God and I longed for them to experience the same love and grace and forgiveness that I had experienced just a few months back. It was just this weird transformation, this strange thing. And people that to me were just cheesy and I wanted nothing to do came, became to me brothers and sisters who I dearly love. That's the fruit of salvation. That's the fruit of God's love in our lives. It is a byproduct of realizing and experiencing God's loving salvation. And when you say you walk in the light and you say that God loves you, that can't help but to swell up your heart and spill out over into other people and to show that love toward them. And so how, how do we make sense? How do we make sense of people who don't love? How do we make sense of people who claim to have fellowship with God, but they don't show this kind of love? How do we make sense of people who say, I'm in the light, but yet their life is, is consistently, consistently um, defined by relational brokenness and hate and bitterness and strife? What do we say about those who say they're in the light, but they don't love? And here's where we see we have a danger of professing to be in the light without the love. Verses 9 and 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John's going to speak a sobering word to us here. And so we see this very, very clear parallel here. Light is love and darkness is hate. The two are mutually exclusive. If I walk into a dark room, this is very, very easy. And I love that John's loving us this way and giving us a very easy example. If I walk into a dark room, I I look for the light switch. And I flip that light on, and darkness no longer dominates. The two can't coexist. They're mutually exclusive. Light and darkness. And so, we've already established this point. Since God is light, and all who claim to have that light love others, the absence of love 
means that no matter what you say, no matter what comes out of your mouth, if the absence of that love shows us that there's an absence of light. To say it more clearly, I'll say this. The absence of love, hate, indicates the absence of light, darkness. If you hate, if your life is constantly and consistently marked by hate, relational strife, bitterness, and anger, you are in the darkness. You have no right to claim to be in the light. So just as the presence of love in the life of a believer is the evidence of life and light at the root of the heart, so the presence of hate points us to a deeper deficiency in the root of the heart. And that deeper deficiency, we, we drill down and we see the, the tentacles and the roots of that heart is down there. It's just death and darkness and blindness. Love shows us what's true at the heart. There's light, there's life, and God's put it there. But hate in our lives shows us a deeper root, a deficiency there. There's darkness and blindness there, and we're in the dark, and we're blind. Now, now notice that John says here that these folks who hate, these folks whose lives are marked by hate, they are both in the dark and they are darkened. Do you see that there in verse 11? They're both in the dark and they're darkened. So it's one thing to be able to see and you walk into a dark room and then you flip a switch on and and you can see. It's a whole nother level of darkness to be in a place that's dark and to be blind. And what John is showing us there is it's not just the kind of places that we dwell and the circumstances, the, the kind of the surface stuff, okay? Yeah, they walk in darkness and they're in the darkness, but there's a deeper thing. They're blind. They're blind. There's a deficiency in the heart. They're both in the darkness and they're darkened. And I take take blindness here. John writes about blindness. I take that here to mean spiritually dead and deceived. Spiritually dead and deceived. You're in the dark and you're blind. You're deceived. They're certainly deceived because their life is marked by hate and unreconciliation. And yet they claim to have fellowship with God who's reconciled them. Their life is consistently showing a pattern of unreconciliation, and yet they claim to have fellowship with God who's reconciled them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They don't go together. They don't match up. These folks are both in the realm of darkness, and they themselves are darkened. There's a spiritual deadness in the heart of those who hate, a spiritual blindness to the lavish love that is true in Christ. Notice how Paul says it here in Titus 3. I love this. Watch the transformation here. And notice the emphasis on the heart and notice the emphasis on the work that God does to bring them out of this darkness. Paul says in Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. That's 1 John 2 there, uh, uh, 2, 6 and 7. We're foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Man, that was me. That was me. Hated by others, hating one another. Disobedient, foolish, being led astray, following various passions and pleasures. If my heart and body thought it and thunk it, I went and did it. No care. No care whatsoever. Notice this great word here, but. But this was us. We were in the dark, we were hated by others, and we were hating one another. But. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now I want you to notice something here. It's not but when I came to my senses and started acting better. It's not that. 
It's not, oh, hey, I came to my senses, I realized it was the dark, and I started loving people. No, no. There's something deeper that needs to be taken care of first. There's something that God needs to do in the root of the heart. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That is how we come to a place of light, and that is how we come to a place of love. Keep that Titus 3 passage up there. Here we see the newness of this commandment again. And this commandment is new in that those who have been made alive by God's Spirit, we were dead and now we've been made alive or as regenerated, as Paul says it here in Titus 3. That same Spirit that awakened us, that same Spirit that took these dead hearts and made them beat, that same Spirit that brought life into our hearts is the same Spirit that God has given to us to indwell us and empower us to love in this new way. In the gospel, in regeneration, in being made alive, we now have the new ability to obey this love command. We now have the new ability to obey any of his commands. We need help from God. We can't do this on our own. We need help from him to display this kind of Christ-defined life and it has everything to do with God making us alive. And this birth, this new birth, this regeneration that he's showing us here, that regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's the key. That's the key to the Christian life. That's the key to obeying any of God's commands, specifically his command to love. This new birth is the difference between those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. Those who are in the light have no reason to boast. None. None. We can never say like, I'm in the light, I love, you don't. Look at me, I'm awesome. We can't do that. We can't do that because the difference is the grace of God to make our hearts alive. We were dead and now made alive. We were blind and now we're made to see. The difference is not that those who are in the light morally outperform those in the darkness by our amazing ability to love. The difference is the grace of God to make our dead hearts beat again. That's the difference. That's the difference between those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. So for the Christian now, this new commandment to love is now written on our hearts. It becomes a desire of ours. It becomes a wellspring. This, this work that God's done in our hearts is now the, love is now the byproduct of that. Love is now the desire that springs from the heart. Before that desire wasn't there. Again, I didn't care. I could all you guys gather around to pray, different burdens going on. I would have been sitting over here in a corner playing on my phone. I could care less. But now I care about that. And we care about that. And it's great to see that fruit of that life as our church gathered to pray for each other just a little bit ago. That's the fruit of that. This new commandment's now written on our hearts. It becomes our desire. becomes our desire and the trajectory of our lives so that because of regeneration, because of the work that God's done in our lives to make us alive, John can say this love is true in him and in you. This love is true in him and also in you. We've been very, very clear this whole time to say that what John is calling for here is not perfection. It's not perfection of obedience. It's not perfection of love, but more a, more a direction, 
more a trajectory. If John were calling for perfection here, all of his teaching in 1 John 1 about confession and and realizing that we have sin and the ongoing cleansing that happens when we ask for forgiveness because of Christ makes no sense. So we've been clear to say desire, or rather direction, not perfection. But what this is showing us, what Paul is showing us here in Titus 3, is that by the grace of God, we desire that direction. We desire that direction. We want that. We hate the darkness. We hate that, that, those, that lingering darkness in our heart, which leads me back to my next point, last point. In verse, eight, in verse 8, John says that the true light, this true light of this love is already shining in the darkness, and the darkness is passing away. The true light's shining, and the darkness is passing away. And in this passage, I see a great hope, but a sobering reality. I see the great hope that there's a day coming when Christ is going to come back, and he's going to put an end to sin. He's going to put an end to sin and all of its effects. He's going to put an end to sin, Satan, death, everything that plagues us. He's going to conquer his enemies. He's going to come and he's going to put an end to all the darkness in this world. And this is the great hope of the church. That Christ has come, he's won this victory, and he's seated at the right hand of God and he's waiting from that time onward to come and make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And this victory one day is going to be fully realized when sin is vanquished and all that's dark in this world is vanquished. And Christ rules and reigns fully. I can't wait for that day. And John says in here that that light is already shining. It's already here. It's already shining. The, the, the age to come, the future age, where, where Christ's rule and reign is fully realized, that's already broken into this present evil age. Because Christ has come as the light of the world. And now that light shines in those who trust in him and have been made alive by him. This light is already shining. Darkness has its day and it's coming. The great hope of the church. There's also a sobering reality in this passage because what John says is that the darkness is passing away, not the darkness has passed away. The darkness is passing away, not it has passed away. So in one last final thought and just a, real, just a very real moment with you guys to get real practical, what do we do with those shadows? What do we do with the shadows in our own hearts, the hearts that have been made alive? the hearts that have experienced this lavish love of God, what do we do with this lingering darkness? What do we do with the shadows of our lives? You know, there's some real practical difficulty to John's words here. Because a lot of times, guys, we don't love in this new way. We don't love in this way. We don't love in the way that Christ loves. Sometimes it's very hard, very difficult to love the way Christ loved. Sometimes it's hard to gauge whether or not our love is love. Whether or not we're even loving like God would have us to love. And sometimes it's not easy to know how to love in this new way in some very difficult circumstances. I don't know how many times I've sat down with parents or others who are in just the midst of a real just difficult time. And they're asking this question, what does it mean to love right now? What does it mean to show love? Is it tough love? Is it grace? Is it forgiveness? Is it don't mention it, don't bring it up? Is it mention it, bring it up, deal with it? I'm striking a chord here with you guys. I know you know this. Sometimes it's hard to know how to love. And even at that, when I compare my love to the love of Christ, I see darkness and shadows everywhere. Even this last week as I was preparing this message, darkness, shadows everywhere. Even with my family. Even with my family. Instead of giving, I self-love. Instead of sacrifice, I hoard. Instead of loving everyone, I show favoritism, play favorites. 
Instead of far-reaching love, I love on the surface and I love from a distance. I fall so short of this love. We all do. Here's the shadows, the darkness. I see shadows in my relationships as well. You know, my life is not free from conflict and disagreements. Our lives are not free from conflict and disagreements, even with brothers and sisters, even with those who are in the church. It's not. I have relationships with other brothers and sisters, other people who have experienced this lavish love along with me that are complicated. Relationships where more needs to be said. Relationships where nothing more can be said. Relationships that have been damaged. Relationships that are healing by God's grace. Relationships that have healed by God's grace. Christians, our lives are not free from sin. And our relationships are not free from sin. And our relationships in the church, for sure, are not free. There's not a single person in this room that doesn't have relational brokenness in their lives, even with other believers. So in light of this teaching, what do we do with that? What do we do with the reality of those shadows, the reality of that darkness in our lives, in light of what John is saying here? I do the same thing that I do when I have sin in general. And this here, we run back to 1 John we see our relational brokenness. We see this unlove in our lives and we confess it. We repent, we repent of it. And we praise God because the, the fact that we even hate it and want to repent of it is put there by God. We don't want this in our lives. And so we see the reality of this new desire and this new life that God's put in us. We confess, we repent, and we hate the darkness and we run into the light of God's continual cleansing and ongoing forgiveness. First John 1, 9. I pray against bitterness. I pray against hatred. I pray against strife. I pray against unreconciliation. And as far as it is up to me, I pursue peace with all men. Pursue unity. Pursue reconciliation. And this is far, far preferred in God's eyes over coming here and singing some songs or performing some spiritual practices. As Jesus said in the, in the, um, the discourse, he said, if you come and you got a sacrifice, but your brother has something against you, drop it. Drop that sacrifice. Who cares about that religious ceremony? You go and you reconcile. And maybe in this room, maybe God's pointing a finger. Maybe he's putting a finger on something specific in our lives. A word that needs to be said. A coffee appointment that needs to be made. A phone call that needs to be made. A text that needs to be sent where we might pursue this kind of light show this kind of love, and pursue this kind of reconciliation. I also take comfort in the struggle, the fact that I even struggle with the darkness, the fact that I even struggle with these shadows means that there's presence of light. If there's shadows of non-love, if, there are, if, there are, if there's little realities of darkness in our lives, it means that we're realizing it, hating it, not wanting to dwell in it. It means that the light of God's love is shining in our lives. The people that John's talking about here are people... That unlove is not the exception in their life, it's the rule. And they stumble around in the darkness and they cause other people to stumble in their own bitterness and in their own hate. And there's little of any remorse for the damage they do in the church and to God's people. They say or do whatever they want to, whenever they want, and they care little of others and the damage that they do. And they go on with no regret and no repentance. That's the kind of person that John's talking about here. But for us who are in the light, that is impossible. It's impossible to live that way because, because we're constantly being loved by God. We're constantly being loved by God, friends, in our own sin and our own rebellion. 
It's impossible to have this continual, unbroken, unhindered pattern and trajectory lifestyle of sin, hate, brokenness, and unreconciliation. And just a final word, if that's you, if you're here, and as God's word is being preached, you're in the darkness. You're in the darkness. Your life is marked by hate. There's plenty, plenty of hatred, strife, and bitterness in you. And you're in that dark place. And God is shining a little bit of light from his word on where you're at. Friend, come out of that darkness. Come out of that darkness and come into the light of Christ's love. Come and experience this. Come and know this God who has paid for all that sin, all that bitterness, all that strife, all that hate in your heart. Run to him. Run to him and experience this forgiveness. Experience the light of this love and embrace this love by faith and watch your life change. Watch your life change. And we'll rejoice. We'll rejoice. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to go to a class. You don't got to fill out a card. You don't got to come down here right where you sit. Embrace the love of the gospel in the face of Christ who shed for, died, and paid the penalty for your own sin in his body on a tree and rose again. Embrace it and embrace him. He is willing and able and sufficient to save. And for those of us that are here, may it never be said, may it never be said that there's brokenness in our lives and we didn't do everything that we can to pursue reconciliation. Paul's words, as far as it is up to me and you, be at peace with all men. Have the last word. Send the last email. Send the last call. Send the last voicemail. Send the last text. And may that last word be, I hate this. I want to reconcile. I want to make it right. That ought to be true in us. And I think that maybe after this message, I think there's some of us in here that have a lot to think about. I think there's some of us in here that have a lot to ponder. And I think some next steps, God's opening your eyes to some of those. By God's grace, have courage. Take those steps. Take those steps and pursue reconciliation as hard as it may be. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your lavish love for us in Christ. God, we can never, ever, anyone, ever come in contact with this love and stay the same. It's impossible. John's showing us that. John's showing us that your love changes and makes a difference. And for the person in here who the extent of their interaction with you is their attendance here on a Sunday and their life's a disaster, May they not be fooled into saying words, I abide in the light and I have fellowship with you. May they not be fooled into saying that or believing that. May they know, and God, in that, you'll show them, but you can come into the light. You can be in the light. Come, embrace this gospel, embrace this cross, embrace this good news. Do a great work, God, in our church. Reconcile some broken relationships as some next steps are taken this week. God, a great word for me. I have some things to think about. Thank you, God, for loving us and continuing to communicate with us in the light. Amen.